Holy Spirit, we ask that you descend on this place, that you pour out your grace and open your ear, our ears, our hearts, and our minds, that we see you in a different way, in a different light for who you really and truly are. May I decrease so you can increase, all for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, a few weeks ago, Bill and Jonathan had asked me to uh, give the message today, and I was excited. Uh, I love this story in the Gospel of John. And I have to tell you, though, over the last couple of weeks, uh, the Holy Spirit's really moved me in a different direction from where I was planning on taking this. And so if any of you have ever been in a class of mine on a Wednesday night, you know I, how much I love my whiteboard, and I'm really missing my whiteboard right now. I wish I had it, but we're going to try to get through this in, in a different way. But uh, last week, Jonathan opened this series called Impossible, which are the miracles of Jesus that are going to take us all the way up through Easter. And he talked about the first miracle that John talks about, which was turning the water into wine in Cana. Now, when we saw this as a first miracle, uh, the Apostle John always, he calls these signs and wonders because he wants us to understand that this is a manifestation of the glory of Jesus. But I think what's really important when we're studying these, these texts is take a step back and let's look at who wrote this. And let's talk about that a little bit and set up some context for us. You see, the gospel was written by John, who was one of the first four disciples that Jesus called. He was the son of Zebedee. He was the younger brother of James, who was another disciple. And he was called the disciple that Jesus loved. And he was among the inner circle of the disciples of Jesus. And he, along with James and Peter, were privileged to witness the transfiguration. He was with Peter when Jesus sent him into Jerusalem to make preparation for the Passover meal. And he sat next to Jesus at that Last Supper and leaned on him. He was one of the few people that remained at the foot of the cross and was the one that Jesus left in charge with his mother Mary before he died. He was not only the author of this gospel, but he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in his old age, exiled on the island of Patmos, he was given the vision that he recorded in what we now know as the book of Revelation. And the reason I want to set this up and remind you of all of this is because if there was any one apostle that understood and knew who Jesus was, it was John. And he just didn't know him. He knew him intimately in a deep, deep relationship. Let's put a map up. And this is the map of ancient Israel during Jesus' time. I hope you can see this. I wish I had my little laser pointer here. 
But as you can see in the southern part of, of Judea is the city of Jerusalem. And all the way up to the Sea of Galilee, we see the Galilean area. We have Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. We have Cana. We have Capernaum. But I think it's really important to get a visual of this because in the middle, between the two areas of Jerusalem and Galilee, we have the area called Samaria. And we have all these stories written in Gospels about the Samaritan people and how they were the enemies of the Hebrew people. They didn't get along. And I find it interesting because all in the Gospels, if you could draw a line, Jesus was constantly going up and down from Jerusalem to Galilee and back. And every time he had to go through these, this country of Samaria and interact with these Gentile people. You see, last week our story took place in Cana up in the north. And before we get to our story today, we can go through those first few chapters of John before we get to chapter 4 and understand that Jesus had traveled back down to Jerusalem and he was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. He started to return to Galilee, but before that he, he had a conversation with Nicodemus. And then he heads back up, traveling through Samaria, where he comes to the well at Sakar. It's about halfway up on his journey. And since today that our story takes place at the ending of chapter 4, I really want to hit some of the uh, parts of the beginning of chapter 4 because I think it's important for us to understand the context of what we're going to be talking about. So chapter 4 in this begins in a place at the well called Sakar, Jacob's well. And he goes up to a Samaritan woman and he asks her for a drink. And she wonders why would this Jewish man be mingling with her. And he talks about living water. All these phrases that she doesn't understand. But what astounded her so much was that he starts telling her about her life. There's no way he should have known this. And scripture says as she went away, she believed in him, understanding that he was the Messiah. Now think about that. This is not a Hebrew woman. This is a Gentile woman that comes in contact with Jesus at a well, and he so overwhelms her with this, she understands who he is in one meeting. And before we get to our story, I want us to look real quickly, if you'll turn to John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. There is something critical here in understanding that sets up our story today. In verse 43, we see Jesus had spent two days in Samaria. He's now leaving, going north to Galilee. And it says, after the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Guess what his own country was? Galilee. He's going back to where he came from, and he understands he has no honor there. 
Verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. You see, all the Jewish festivals, all the Jewish people traveled to Jerusalem. It was required. And what's so interesting about this is he says as he's going back that a prophet doesn't have any honor, but when he goes back there, they receive him. But why did they receive him? It was more of a welcome. Hey, Jesus, welcome home. But it says here specifically, John wants us to understand, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem. So obviously, there were some miraculous things that he completed down in Jerusalem that John didn't feel like he needed to highlight. But see, his time in the middle in Samaria was spectacularly successful. The whole town of Sakar was turning towards Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior of the world, but he goes back home and he's just an ordinary Jesus. It's Mary and Joseph's son, the carpenter, from Nazareth, from nowhere. John 4.42 says, We have heard him for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world, the Gentiles. So if we're looking at that map, if we'll put that map back up, see Galilee is where Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and about 10 miles north of Nazareth is Cana, where he turned the water into wine back in chapter 2, 15 miles east from Cana is Capernaum, and that's where we're going to pick our story up today. So what we want to do is look and ask ourselves, why are these verses put in here right before this story? John thinks they're so important. You know, when he goes back home and he's welcomed, they received him, they welcomed him. They welcomed him for just what he had been doing. See, they saw those signs and wonders, and here's what I think they believed. They believed in Jesus without believing in Jesus, if that makes sense. They know who he is, but they just don't really know and believe who he is, the Savior of the world. You see, John mentions this in a lot of his writings in, the, in this gospel. If you were in chapter 2, it said in, when Jesus was at the Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs and that what he was doing. It's not hard to believe in somebody's name, is it? But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew himself knew what was in man. When you come into a contact of a sovereign God that understands you and knows what's in here, he has no need of anything from you. What he wants is that relationship with you. But see, John wants us to understand this contrast 
between hometown people and the Gentile people. Because the hometown people welcomed him because he did something. That's their attitude toward him. And we're going to contrast that attitude with our actual text today. So let's read beginning in verse 46. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea of Galilee, into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal officials said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go. Your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was now living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea and into Galilee. So let's set the scene. He's back at home, right? He's probably walking, talking with people, and a royal official just walks up to him. Now, who is this royal official? Well, we understand that if he's royal, he's probably from the court of Herod Antipas, Antipas which we know as King Herod. Herod. Herod was wicked. He had married his brother's wife. He had beheaded John the Baptist. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus even refers to King Herod as that fox. But this official from that royal court would probably be a Roman citizen, a Gentile. And his worldview would be totally different that of the Jewish faith, right? He would believe in many gods. But the whole worldview at that time believed that when you had a sickness or an illness, that that was a result of a sin or something that you had done wrong in your life. And even the Jews believed this. That's how they treated the lepers. And so you have this Roman official seek out a Jewish man that he probably had heard about this water into wine bit. Now we can probably safely assume that this officer did everything in his power to get his son healed. I'm sure whoever the doctors were at that time, he went to them. Nothing worked. I'm sure he prayed to all the different gods that he worshipped in those days, and nothing happened. And so probably as a last-ditch effort, he thought, well, what have I got to lose? Just anything to heal my child. 
But looking closer at verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him, and it scripture says, and was imploring him. He was begging him. He was pleading with him to come down and heal his son. Because he thought Jesus had to come physically be there. And I find it interesting that Jesus' first thing to him says, Hey, you people... It's plural here in the Greek. Some, some of your versions of Scripture just say the word you. Uh, the NASB says you people. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's already setting up a comparison to his Jewish brethren who he said that's the only reason they believe is they see this stuff. I think that was a small test for the Roman official because he certainly could have walked away at that time, but he didn't. And the royal official just looks calmly at him and in verse uh, 49 said, Sir, come down before my child dies. In verse 50, Jesus said, Go, your son lives. Gentile unbeliever knows nothing about the Jewish faith, has enough faith to walk up to the Son of God and believe that this man can heal his son. And Jesus says, it's done. Go do it. Just go home. And I love it because verse 50 says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And this type, this word in Greek belief is not just, I understand it, I have knowledge of it. It is trusting in him. I trust in his word. I trust that what he says is going to happen. And I believe it so much that I'm willing to walk off. And I know it's going to happen. And then we get to verse 53. And the officer and his whole household believe. He goes and tells them. Says, hey, your son is healed. This Jesus guy just spoke this. See, what seemed impossible suddenly became possible. But see, interestingly enough, all throughout this chapter 4, John is showing us the differences in types of belief between Jesus and his own people, the Jews, and between Jesus and the Gentiles' understanding of Jesus, the Samaritans even, and the royal officer. Because I think what John is showing us here that the Jews were sign seekers, but the officer was a savior seeker. See, the Jews loved Jesus' power, but the officer became a lover of the person. So stepping back, looking as we've analyzed this text, what is John doing here? What is the main point that we should be getting out of this? But see, he's been doing this over and over throughout his writings, and he continues to do so in his gospel. What he's doing is showing us the greatness of Christ through an astonishing miracle, but that's just a part of it. John wants us to overcome the obstacles in our mind to seeing who the glory of Jesus is in this text. 
And the way he does this is by showing us the kinds of things that keep people from truly knowing Jesus. He sets up a contrast. Because here's the difference. We take the word belief and faith and we just interchange it right and left, don't we? Oh, I believe it. I have faith. I have faith. I believe. And the truth of the matter is they're not the same word. Because belief in something is just an assertion. I believe I know who the president is. But I don't know him. I believe I know who the owner of Chick-fil-A is, but I don't know him. See, faith goes much farther. It puts a personal trust into something. So I'm going to ask you, Gitwell, this morning, here's the question for you. Do you simply believe in Jesus, his name, or do you believe you know him, you entrust yourself to him? Because there's a difference. Knowledge versus entrusting yourself to him. Now one thing that we have to get out of the way if we're even going to go in this direction is we have to get through this. We have to understand that Jesus was fully God and fully man here on earth and came for one reason and that's for the salvation of us. If we don't understand that, how in the world can we ever put faith and trust in Him? We've got to get that down. But even when we have that, we have hindrances to our faith. We have hindrances because of our fallen nature to our putting our complete faith and trust in Jesus. Here's some of them. One of them is pride of attachment to someone or something special. You see, it's kind of a vicarious sense of importance here. Uh, the people could say that this great miracle worker, the Jews, grew up in their own town. And this makes them want for him to do more miracles for them. So they honor him in that way. But why do they want him to do miracles? Because the more he does, the more they get attached to him. It's their ego. They don't see the glory for their own, of their own, they only see the glory for their own benefit. They don't feel the need of his grace. They use him. His power and fame fuels their pride. And they don't honor him for who he is, even though they think they are. You see, this impulse is very much alive today in the church across the world. And we have to guard against it. Because pride and ego can infect us from, and keep us from knowing who Christ is and the way he really is. Because there's many ways this plays out. We can become attached to a church or a movement or a music style or a person or ministry, or time. And we see it's justifiable because we say we're Christian. It's all in the church. But subtly, we begin to want this Christian thing not to thrive for His glory, but for ours. 
And when we don't see who Christ really is, that he saves us by grace, he calls us to empty ourselves, us to lowliness and us to servanthood, we really get ourselves in a mess. A second hometown impulse is a sense of entitlement. And that may be in us even though we're not part of Jesus' hometown Jewish entitlement. He's, he, he, we claim him. The Jews claimed him at first. Oh, he's from, he's from our area. We got first dibs on him. But if you ever start to feel entitled in your blessings of Christ... I think you're falling away because a sense of deservedness or entitlement will keep you from knowing, truly knowing and trusting who Christ is. We won't honor him in that way. A third one is in the church, sometimes we have an over-familiarity of who Jesus is. Now that sounds strange, doesn't it? You know, we Christians claim him, we've got this, we know him, we'll tell you all about him. We're so familiar with the Bible, which is a good thing, by the way. We're so familiar with Jesus and so familiar with Christianity that what we do is we let it stop astounding us when we watch him work these impossible situations and make them possible in our lives. It becomes so routine. If you come in these doors and you walk away and you say, well, that was boring, I promise you that to that day you did not experience Jesus. It's a, I'm just saying this, people. And another faith hindrance that I think is very dangerous, and I, I've racked my brain this week to come up with a phrase for this, but I'm just going to say it, and y'all can laugh. I call it the Santa Claus faith. And the reason I call it that is because when we think of children and our faith in Santa Claus, our trust in Santa Claus, we think we have to be good and do something to get something. And boy, do we not see that in our fellow Christians in the church communities. We've grown up thinking that we have to be a certain way, we have to act a certain way, we have to do a certain way, and if I don't act this way, Jesus is not going to love me. There's no way he can do anything for me. And that's just not true because if grace is nothing about works. It's nothing about what you do. It is simply a gift that he says, here, I've got you taken care of. But we have so turned our faith walk into this works-based event that it cheapens it and we don't know who he is. And I'm going to tell you this. All of these over my life I have struggled with. Please don't sit here thinking i am got this together. This is something we each struggle with at one point in our life. See, how do we deal with this? How do we have a complete faith? 
where our trust is in him. The faith of that royal official, that officer. Let's look at Hebrews. It's the definition. Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Think about that. Assurance of what you hope for and you're certain, you're convicted of things you don't see that are going to happen. He's going to work in you. And I never can read that verse without going to verse 6 where it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must what? Believe that he is. That's not a belief in the belief. It is an understanding and a trusting in who Jesus is. I'm part of a family ministry group of pastors from around the country, and we get together once a year in January. One of them talked about this, and so I'm going to borrow some of his phrases from him, but I'm going to add to them as well. He says that a complete faith is, I'm confident Jesus can. I'm assured that Jesus can. I'm hoping Jesus will. I'm confident Jesus can. I'm hoping Jesus will. And I want to add to that because I think there's one element missing, and that is submitting to his will. Assurance, hope, and surrender. Assurance, hope, and surrender. To me, that's what a complete faith is. Now see, the surrender part's the hard part too, isn't it? Because when we surrender, we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, I love you. I hope, I know you can. I hope you will. And then we say, but if you don't do this, if things don't go my way, if they don't go this way, that's a dangerous thing because many have walked away from the faith with that attitude. See, when we submit to his will and his sovereignty, we know Romans that it, Paul said in Romans, it all works out for our good. It may not be the way we want it. It may be difficult and it may be trials, but in the end, he works it out for our good. The officer knew this. How he knew it, I have no idea. He encountered Jesus, but look at this. He goes to Jesus. Jesus, I think you can do this. In fact, I know you can. I hope you're going to do it. And Jesus says, go, and he submits and he goes. That's astounding, folks, in that culture of that day for some Roman official to do that. How do we have that kind of faith? How do we interact with him this way each and every day? I'm going to tell you how I do it. It's it's, It's not the way. It's just the way I deal with it. And I've learned over time to deal with it this way. I have to imagine to get through a day someday and things I'm dealing with, Jesus right here beside me, as if he's standing here. I have to do it. And I have to say, Jesus, I know you can, and I hope you will, but according to your will. And it's a conscious effort to make him alive and real right here with me, and he is because we are promised that through the Holy Spirit living in us. 
We have a real God, folks. The one who made it all lives in us. He is real. He is alive and we can depend on him. Do you get that? Do you see that faith? It's much better than just saying, I just believe you, Jesus. Oh, I believe. Because here's my challenge for you this week. Practice that. Practice Jesus thinking Jesus is here with you and talk to him and say, Jesus, I know it. I know you can do it. I hope you will, but it's according to your will. And I promise you it changes your way you think about things. It changes the way you act. It changes the way you interact with other people. See, because our decision is, are we going to be like the hometown folks and require something? Well, I need to see a miracle, Jesus, first. The official didn't need that. See, John wants us to see this distinct difference. Because by the time this gospel was written, other gospels, the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had already been written and were passed around. John was the last one written. But I really do think John, the beloved disciple, wanted us to see something a little bit more. At the end of his writings, he says... John 20, 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. That's us. Do you think he, when he wrote that, he's thinking of the future? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet come to believe. We didn't get to witness all this eyewitness history. But we get to experience someone that was a part of this. And he goes on to say, but these are written so that you may come to believe, you may come to trust that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, through that word, through trusting in him, you may have life in his name. I don't believe because I believe. I believe because I know him. And there's such a difference. The band's going to come up, and there's a moment here that we open our altars for you to come and, and have time with God. So I ask you, get well, where's your faith? Is it in a belief of a man that lived in historical figure? Or is it in a risen Savior that's standing right there next to you, living within you? walking with you each and every day. My challenge every day is to practice this kind of faith, and I challenge you as well. Jesus, I know you can, and I hope you will, accordingly to your will. Let's pray. God, we cannot even fathom the depths of your love and your grace. We get so blinded by the stuff of this world that we doubt. We don't live as though you can do it. You can do the impossible. So we just pray now for that entrusting faith, that entrusting belief that you can do all things.
Through you, all things are possible. And according to your will, we submit to you. Just be with us each and every day as we walk with you and have that kind of faith. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.